Can you think of a dangerous idea that would change the world for the better? This was the question discussed at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas in 2013. One evening, a panel shared their dangerous ideas. There was Dan Savage, and he suggested population control. Jermaine Greer said freedom to make choices. And then Peter Hitchens spoke. Peter's the journalist and the brother of atheist Christopher Hitchens. And he said the most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. I'm not sure if you've ever thought of Jesus as a dangerous idea. Sure, being a Jesus follower in Afghanistan, North Korea or Somalia is dangerous. But belief in Jesus? Strange. The panel's compare thought the same. He asked, Peter, why is belief in Jesus, Jesus dangerous? Peter said, because it alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns the universe from a meaningless chaos into a designed place in which there is justice and there is hope and therefore we all have a duty to discover the nature of that justice and work towards that hope. It alters us all. If we reject it, it alters us all as well. It is incredibly dangerous. Everyone paused and asked for a Bible. No. People shook their head, avoided the argument and went down a different rabbit hole. Hitchens' point shocked the panel and the audience because our world has hijacked Jesus as a swear word and reimagined him as a mythic, ancient and irrelevant character. What's interesting is that it shocked Christians too, who also underestimate the monumental impact of the arrival of Jesus for the world. I think Mark, who wrote the book we're going to read together in Term 1, would have been nodding his head as Peter Hitchens Hitchen shared his thought. You get it. Belief in the person and work of Jesus is the most dangerous idea in the world. His arrival is the fulcrum of history, the reason we have hope. See how Mark starts his book. There's no warm-up, no birth stories. Mark summarises the whole book in one sentence. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's gospel is an announcement. He calls it the gospel. This is not a religious cliche or a type of music. The word gospel in the first century indicated a momentous announcement of great importance. Remember the old days when the world would stop and huddle around the radio or TV to hear an announcement, like landing on the moon or a president's speech? In some ways, we've lost the impact of announcements in our instant generation, where we're pinged with a constant breaking news every single hour. Mark's gospel is not clickbait. The next 16 chapters contain a momentous announcement of good news. It's the news of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Mark uses the word Christ. Now, this does not refer to Jesus' family name, Mary Christ or Joseph Christ. Christ is a title, like Dan the Sparky, Sam the Dentist. It means anointed one. In our Disney-shaped world, the coronation of kings and queens is done with a crown. In the Old Testament, God's kings were anointed with oil. The anointed one was chosen by God to ascend the throne and rule as God's king. So grasp Mark's momentous announcement. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the king. And he's also the son of God. Now, that's a tricky phrase. A typical Jew would not normally jump to thinking that Jesus was God's divine son. They would apply it to Israel's kings or Israel as a whole. 
So back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, or Psalm 2, the great messianic, messianic psalm, the promised king was also called the Son of God. And we'll see that Jesus is more than another fallen king, and he has a unique relationship with God. But Mark's focus in his gospel is on the kingship of Jesus. This shapes how we should read his gospel. Now, what's the most appropriate response to verse 1? Tell me more. So Mark follows up his grand announcement with four more announcements that help us grasp the monumental nature of the arrival of God's king. Number one, the prophet's announcement. The king is coming. Watch for the messenger. What do you imagine a faithful Israelite to be doing 2,000 years ago? One word captures it. Waiting. They were standing on the walls of the town, looking to the horizon, waiting for God to come and save. See verse 2? As it's written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Israel's deep, embedded hopes for salvation were founded on the words of the prophets. Mark quotes from Malachi 3 verse 1 and Isaiah 40 verse 3 to describe the arrival of the promised messenger. Their arrival would signify the beginning of God's final great intervention in history. The messenger was the advance party, preparing the way for the arrival of God to judge from Malachi and to save from Isaiah. Their role was to get people's attention. Mark reminds us of the prophet's announcement. The king is coming. Watch for the messenger. And then there is movement on the horizon. A dust cloud. The messenger is here. Verse 4. John comes baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The wilderness dominates our verses today, verses 1 to 15. We see it in Isaiah and then in John and then in Jesus' temptation. For the faithful Israelite, the wilderness was not the place of punishment, but the place of hope, the place of new beginnings. Remember where you were converted. For me, that was on a camp. That is like our new beginning. God met with Israel in the wilderness and made him them into his people when he saved them from Egypt. It was in the wilderness where Israel learned to trust in the provision and the protection of God. And it was where Hosea prophesied that God again would meet his people and they would find their true destiny. Hosea chapter 2 verse 14, Therefore I am going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Angkor into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. After years of waiting, God's promised messenger met God's people in the wilderness, not Jerusalem. There was John, the messenger, with clothes and diet, like the prophet Elijah, calling people to repent like the prophets did, to turn away from the institution and turn back to God to turn away from evil thoughts and patterns to faithful obedience of God's word. Be baptised. We miss the shock, don't we? We're Gentiles, most of us. We're used to being baptised, but Jews were never baptised. That was a Gentile path to becoming part of God's people. And John is saying that being born again, sorry, John is saying that being born a Jew was not enough. God's people needed to prepare themselves to be part of God's people by repentance and baptism. 
to meet God's king. John's appearance in the wilderness was the most important event in the life of Israel for more than 300 years. His announcement was clear. The king is coming, prepare yourself. But he also recognised his place. His role was to prepare people for the great one. The one would the one coming would baptise with the life-giving spirit of God himself. God was about to breathe life into dry bones, just like he promised in Ezekiel 36. Then Mark introduces a new actor, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. From the north, a place Jerusalem people distrusted, Nazareth, so insignificant that few had ever heard of it. He is the most improbable candidate for the role of Christ in Israel. Jesus came to be baptised. At one level, that's what everyone else was doing. No one blinked an eye. Jesus joined the line. But we blink an eye because we know who he is. Jesus lines up with sinners, not on account of his own guilt, but because he is one with God's people. But as soon as he comes out of the water, God makes an announcement. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, announcing that Jesus is the promised servant of Isaiah. See Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. Jesus is empowered and directed by the spirit and the one who will dispense the spirit. Then there's a moment that I would have loved to have witnessed. God says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's again a mash of two prophecies from the Old Testament. Jesus is God's beloved son, the promised king of Psalm 2. And Jesus is the servant in whom God delights. He is the beloved, well-pleased son. He is the servant of Isaiah. He's the servant who we know will suffer and die to bring justice and salvation. Isaiah 53. The gospel is not a mystery story in which the identity of the main character has to be guessed. God tells us the spirit-empowered servant king is here. It's time. It's a slogan used so well by Whitlam in the 70s, Midnight Oil in the 80s and 90s, Obama to great effect. This is the moment. As King Jesus speaks for the first time, he declares, it's time. Chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus declares, it is time for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's final rule on earth. It's not a place. It's all the blessings promised by the prophets. Peace, justice, forgiveness, the final overthrow of Satan, the defeat of death, the resurrection of the body, the restoration of creation, reconciliation of humanity and God. And the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here. God has come in his spirit, empowered servant king and king jesus will pour out god's spirit as promised he has a cure for the world's corruption he is a vaccine against death and no matter how sin sick you are no matter how much guilt you carry king jesus provides a way for you to enter god's eternal kingdom by dying and rising on the cross the kingdom has arrived with the king and one day it will be fully realized What's the appropriate response to these monumental announcements? 
Well, King Jesus tells us. He calls everyone to repent and believe. Repent, not feel sorry. Stop and change direction. Believe the good news. Not bland moralism, a good teacher empowering people to live better lives. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Spirit-empowered servant King. We are to turn from ourselves to Jesus Christ as King. Literally, Jesus is saying, be repenting and believing. It's not a once-in-a-life event, but a daily turning, trusting, putting Jesus as King of all parts of our life. That's the Christian way, for the King has arrived. There's a fascinating movie on Netflix this year called Don't Look Up. It tells the story of the discovery by scientists of a massive comet that is on a collision course for Earth. As they try to make people aware of what's coming, the news bounces off people like a rubber ball. They just go back to their phones with a collective, Muh? But there's an incredible moment when the comet appears in the sky and life stops. Cars stop. Everyone looks up and sees the comet with their own eyes. And what follows is a social media campaign, hashtag look up which compels people to see for themselves. But the government, the leaders in denial, counter with their own campaign. Hashtag don't look up. Stick your head in the ground. Ignore the evidence. Mark has monumental good news to share. How will you respond? King Jesus calls us to look up from our phones, our busy lives, our passionate scepticism, look up and see the arrival of God's King. He is not what you expect. 27 years ago, I put my trust in the most dangerous idea in human history. I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I was in complete denial until then. Jesus was insignificant and worthy of my attention. And then God opened my eyes to who he was. And God helped me repent of my sins Turn my crown to Jesus. Turn from my wickedness and unbelief. Trust Jesus as my King and Saviour. The servant King died for me. And since then, it hasn't been perfect. I've battled between true discipleship, Jesus is my King, and partial discipleship, partial denial. Now, true discipleship is commitment to surrender all to Jesus. No room is locked to King Jesus. And partial denial is some rooms are locked to the king. That might be you. You might be really close to Jesus on caring for the poor, but not close to Jesus on his views on purity. You might be close to Jesus on coming to church every week, but not so much with Jesus on loving all different types of people. You might be close to Jesus on heaven through grace in Jesus but not really with Jesus in letting him dictate how you do your year, how you measure success in 2022. Now, if that's you, you're not alone. We all struggle with partial denial. So go back to the wilderness. Remember when you met that first king and meet him again. Because it's as we understand who he is. We grow in our awe and our love and our trust of him. And then we'll be able to live as he desires. Look up. Follow the king.